Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. This I'm your host, VGR Nathan. Uh, sorry for there's a little bit of a delay in this uh, recording. Um, I'm recording from home. I'm broadcasting from home. And with us today is uh, Bruce Whitaker, our co-host, and Devanshi uh, Ketherpal. Uh, welcome to you both. Welcome, Bruce. If we say hello. Hey, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thank you. And Deva, yeah. welcome. So why don't we start Thank the conversation you. off catching up with uh, what we're doing in the, uh, this is, uh, again, this is the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. So why don't we start the conversation off with how we're catching up with how we're doing during this crisis, and then we can uh, continue from there. Thanks. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So Bruce, yeah. you want to start? Okay, well, good morning, everyone. It's a delight to be here with Vichy. I've known him for a while, and this is my first time uh, being with him on the show. And I'm delighted to get to know David this morning. I know this will be really great. Um, I am uh, broadcasting from home in uh, Forest Hills, Queens. Um, the lockdown started just as I was transitioning out of my position as executive director of Theater Forward. And uh, so I am now starting on my uh, second week of my uh, new act of uh, writing and uh, doing this kind of thing. I just had a couple of poems published last week. And uh, so it's been uh, a kind of a whirlwind of a few weeks, but uh, no complaints. Uh, Forest Hills is holding up very, very well. Spring is everywhere. And uh, so it's been a great season in that way, even as we are surrounded by the impact of the COVID-19 crisis. The surrounding neighborhoods of Corona, Jackson Heights have been very, very heavily impacted by it, much more so than we have. And of course, the whole city is kind of at a, a staggering halt uh, with a lot of concern in the theater sector where I've been working about when it will be safe to return to concentrations of people in theaters even as we kind of need that more than ever. So it's a very bittersweet time in that sense and uh, a lot of concerns for the future, of course. Thank you, thank you. Mm -hmm. And uh, just to introduce Deva, Devanshi Ketterpal is from Bhopal, India and currently lives in Manhattan, New York, although she's been displaced currently, uh, is a senior at New York University majoring in comparative literature with a minor in creative writing. She's a BAMA candidate in comparative literature in New York University due to graduate um, due to graduate in fall 2022. She is the founder and editor-in-chief of Inglet Magazine and her poetry collection titled Small Talk came out in 2019 from Writers Workshop India. Um, and her poems have also appeared in Indian Literature, Best Poetry, Best Indian Poetry 2018, and Transom. All right, so welcome, Deva. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how this uh, COVID-19 uh, crisis affected you and what's going on with you now, yeah. Yeah, um, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, glad to be talking to um, you and Bruce. Um, I think that, uh, um, so I was, um, I, I thought that I'd stay in New York, um, you know, for the remainder of the semester and not come home. And I was obviously concerned with, I mean, I mean, bringing the virus with me or, you know, infecting other people until it was my 21st birthday. And I just come back after getting groceries and NYU sent us an email saying that the dorms are closed and you have to evacuate possibly within 48 hours. Um, 
and you know, in no less than a week. So it's kind of like, yeah, it was, I just had to, um, yeah, it, it was, it was a, it was really stressful because I um, had to get a flight to Bhopal and I wasn't sure how expensive the flights were, if they were all going to be full. Um, so I got a, I got a relief grant thankfully in time and was able to book a flight and like pack my stuff. Um, but it was like two sleepless nights trying to get out of the city. And I was really anxious before traveling. I mean, I'm usually anxious before I travel, but I was particularly anxious because I didn't know if being cramped in an airplane with um, people would be the best idea at this point. Um, and then I came to, I think that in India, we did we don't have like, we have about um, 20,000 ish cases or, you know, around that number, maybe 15,000 to 20,000 at this point. Um, but at the same time, it's, um, it's been a really, it's been a really tragic time, honestly, because I think that it's becoming another excuse for the government to impose a lot of authoritarian policies, a lot of these colonial era laws, um, and we're under complete lockdown. And at the same time, a lot of about 45 million migrant workers were displaced without, you know, food, shelter, home, having to walk a hundred miles. Um, back to their villages with stuff on their backs and their children and families. Um, so yeah, I think that we are, I mean, I, I think that I'm doing fine, everything considered, but um, I think it's really hard to see the country at this point and how it's playing out um, in the larger, um, yeah, in the larger picture, I guess. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, now going back to your bio, what yeah. what about your writing mission and how is that have you been writing as well or you were just you just been going through your classes and uh online and such but have you, and now tell us a little bit about your writing uh purpose and mission what your themes are what you're interested in as far as um as a writer as an artist yeah i i think that um i mean i think that i've still i i do have time to write more these days thankfully um which I didn't have, you know, back in New York because I guess I had more responsibilities living alone and now I'm at home and there's family. Um, so I have been finding a lot of more time to, to write um, and specifically to focus on poetry. So I've been doing, you know, a couple of poetry workshops online and um, meeting up more or doing more workshops with, with poet friends. Um, and I, I do my online classes from 1 a.m. to 3.30 a.m., some of them. So it's, it's kind of, <laughs> oh, wow. yeah. it's, it's fun. It's fun being a night owl again. Um, and um, yeah, I think, that, I think that I've been focusing a lot more on, um, I, I've been starting to translate more poetry from Hindi to English, um, but I'm also in an Italian translation class. So I think that Italian to English translation is something you do and, something that I think about outside of that class and yeah just like writing poetry about it's primarily now it's about what I see in the news because I feel like a lot of it can get overwhelming and poetry has a certain silence and lyric to it and poetry helps me meditate on those things and not really get so anxious and caught up um, so I think I I use poetry as a way to answer or ask questions and meditate instead of um, be anxious about reading the news. Mm -hmm. 
I'd like to explore a little bit about India right now. I know it's an extremely critical moment. And um, one of the, the uh, books that I've read over the last year uh, was so fascinating was The Twice Born by Atish Tazir, who has now been banned from returning to India. And he, what he was exploring fundamentally was the separation of the educated Western traveling elites of India from the sort of Sanskrit Brahmin culture of the country. And this divide is being exploited by Modi in, in various ways to drive a very nationalistic agenda. But I see very strong parallels between the kinds of things uh, Tazir was talking about and what's been happening in this country where the sort of neoliberal class of the media and a lot of corporate leaders and frankly, a lot of us in the arts, I think quite frankly, have become separated from our base in a way, the people, I grew up in Nebraska. And I talk to my friends back there now and it's like two different languages, two completely different perspectives. And it's playing out in so many ways. Can you talk a little bit about language and poetry connecting uh, across these lines? You know, you're obviously a very internationalized person and um, how, do, how, how does a person who's seen a lot of the world stay connected and to the people who um, you're just farther and farther from over time? Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, I, I don't think that it was really hard for me to, to stay connected because I, I think that I come from Bhopal, which is a really small town and it has a very rich Islamic culture as well. Um, so I think that I kind of grew up being around Urdu, around Hindi, and kind of around this Islamic culture. But also, I went to a Catholic school that was right next to a mosque. So, you know, I, I think that I kind of, I think that was my idea of India always. Like, you know, this is a secular democracy, and this is how we're supposed to be, and we're all supposed to live together. Um, and I think now that, that that idea of India is kind of, you know, seems like a distant memory almost because it's um, even though I think that English does have, um, you know, does have more power and does have, does command our lives more in a sense. And that's obviously something that, you know, it's like after British rule, I think that in India still hasn't gotten over a lot of the colonial attitudes um, and we kind of, you know, see ourselves from that gaze. Um, but at the same time, Modi is like, really pushing for, um, you know, Sanskrit and Hindi and sort of saying, oh, this has to be, um, you know, Sanskrit and Hindi kind of have to be the national languages, even though, you know, then that dismisses a lot of regional languages, that dismisses dialects, that dismisses a lot of communities that don't recognize and then still consider Sanskrit and Hindi to be kind of these other languages or kind of these upper caste languages. Um, so I think that, those factors, and he's been manipulating them really, really well, um, you know, in a very bad sense, of course, but he, um, yeah, I think he's been pushing forth, even like engaging Bollywood in the conversation and kind of pushing forth these nationalist films. And um, so, yeah, I think that that's happening. Um, but, but at the same time, we have protests happening at universities um, and students are really coming forth and speaking up and they have been reciting poetry and they've been reciting revolutionary uh, poetry and writers. And sometimes when they, you know, they, they recently started singing this one song by a Pakistani revolutionary poet, 
Fez, Ahmed Fez, and there was a whole controversy that kind of just blew up because, you know, how can you be um, reciting a poem by a Pakistani <laughs> poet? Um, yeah. 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 I, I didn't expect them to care so much about poetry, but apparently they do. So, yeah. That's, do you feel, I'm, I'm, you're turning to poetry at a time like this, many of us of course are, but do you feel that poetry, it's hard sometimes to see it as a practitioner, but do you see it ascending in, a, in public attention on a kind of larger level? I wouldn't say a mass level, but is it ascending in people's attention right now? Yeah, I think it is. And especially I think poetry is, I mean, I think that a lot of people have been making songs out of these poems and um, a lot of kind of, um, I think that poetry, because of maybe it's rhythm, maybe it's lyric, I think that it just kind of catches attention. And, and I think that it does, it does give freedom, I think. Like, I think that there's, there's something about metaphor that gives freedom to, for everyone to insert their own narrative and insert their own story and identify in their own ways. So I think it's kind of a space where a lot of, subjectivities can can emerge and can you know um people can identify with so i think that's happening and thankfully i think yeah poetry is making poetry and songs are making a comeback yeah yeah you talk a little bit about provoking a response in your writing so yeah. i'd be curious like uh like one of the questions was what do you hope your principal discipline uh will do for others or what do you hope the listener will receive from you uh, one of the questions we had in the pre-interview questions. So you're discussing about provoking a response or, or generating a uh, challenge to the reader. If you tell us a little bit more about kind of how you challenge readers and how you think the, in this dissent narrative, how, um, how, how are people getting challenged by poetry or what is the specific modality that they're using to present that challenge? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that I've kind of been really, there's this poem by Bridget Pigeon Kelly called Song, which, you know, starts with the word listen. And then, you know, she tells the story of, of how a goat's head was hanging from a tree. And, you know, then this girl sees it. And, and it's kind of, it's really a moving poem. So I think that I've been attracted to it. And I've been using the word listen to begin my poems a lot. Because I think that it seems as though no matter how many protests and no matter how much, how much, you know, we dissent, it just seems like there's no answer from the government or from the people who should be answerable to us, or even from supporters of the government, you know, who, who we just want them to listen to us and kind of be like, oh, hey, this is the voice of the women, the minorities, you know, the, the poor and the Dalits. And so it just seems like, um, so I think that it, it kind of, I think now my, I, I, in my poems, I kind of try to, to evoke a response because I just feel like there is no response or there's a vacuum that I feel um, of speaking out loud, but having no one to hear you. Um, and I think that at the same time, it's, it's interesting because I, I think that a lot of the poetry that I'm now seeing kind of puts forth this like very straightforward logic, you know, and, and one would not think that, oh, you know, poetry is like convoluted or maybe if, you know, if anyone ever thought that poetry is convoluted and kind of didn't have its own logic or poetic logic didn't work, I think that a lot of like these poems of dissent and protest are actually putting forth a very political logic saying this, what you're doing is wrong and objectively wrong. Um, so I think that that also is something that challenges power or that challenges, um, I think anyone who sides with power to listen 
Yeah, yeah. I actually came across a very interesting meme about um, the difference between emotionality and rationality. You know, that yeah. this meme basically quoted as saying uh, uh, the credit is to Fox Meadows. Um, real talk, the most dangerously emotional people in the world are men so obsessed with being rational. They constantly mistake their own feelings for objective logic. And on that basis, they believe that rationality makes them makes their feelings guided by rationality and thus infallible. I think it was interesting, like when you're t talking about how uh, the reasonable man or like reason, listen to reason, all these arguments and how, um, you know, we're kind of trying to negate the emotional. But then ultimately, you know, it's all just a form of subjectivity. It's all just a form of or a modality of subjectivity that that's guising as logic or guising as rationality. And I think that's mm -hmm. how kind of that's kind of evoked in me when you were saying about listening, because it's important to um, not get fooled by poetic logic, you know, thinking it's just emotions. And and what do you think about that? What What, what is your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that I kind of have this discussion with my father where, you know, I, I think that I I got like kind of too, he said emotional about, you know, an argument we were having about what's going on and everything. But but I think it just seems to me that I think that there are emotions on, on both sides of the spectrum. Like I think that, you know, there are people, there may be right wing Hindus and upper caste people in this country who want to protect their identity and are very emotionally attached to it. But at the same time, minorities and Dalits and women and the poor are equally attached to their struggles. But I think that they're, so I think it goes both ways. But I, at the same time, I think that there is a, there's a certain, I think that poetry is kind of a meeting ground for both of them. Because I think that also a lot of the poetry that I see sometimes is, is also very satirical. You know, it's kind of, it's not, it's not stating that this is right or wrong. It's just stating a fact. And I, I like poems by Akil because he was, he said, he wrote this one poem, which was like, oh, you know, I was born in a, in a Hindu household and my nurse was Christian and my doctor was Muslim and that's who we are. Um, which is not, you know, something like a, like a statement or it's, it, it's, it's just a poem. It's not something that's the truth or the ultimate truth. Um, but at the same time, it's certainly a reflection of the truth that we must all kind of reconcile with and consider and meditate on and, and meet in the middle. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I think that I have, I mean, I think that I just see rationality and emotionality as kind of like, you know, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't see them as two binaries. I think that they're equally, or I think we should stop seeing them as binaries or opposites or complementaries. I think that they, they go along perfectly together and they are both infused in each other um, more so. Yeah. I'm sort of thinking about that and uh, this idea of um, concepts like wisdom and compassion, you know, this idea of rationality and emotion in a way that ultimate wisdom is a is an indelible combination of both and um, how as we stray from one end of the spectrum to the other from wisdom over to compassion too much emotion too much rationality um, it becomes very flawed but one of the fundamental problems I think is so hard to reconcile right now is the way emotions have driven our search for truth Mm -hmm. And we are looking for the, conf the for the confirming fact, um, and this is where um, points of view become so hard to reconcile. People take positions based on 
driven by their beliefs, they find the facts and they hold to those facts or they're led to those facts, I think is a very dangerous place right now. And it's not inconceivable that poetry and wordsmithing will help lead to those improper facts or those incorrect facts uh, or facts that tell only one's part of the story. Um, and in this dangerous time, I think uh, it, this blurring of fact and emotion is, is one of the things that's clotting up the, the dialogue in both our countries uh, and in many, many places around the world. Um, that has, as voters and as citizens become generally more educated, somewhat more comfortable, their grasp on truth, our grasp on truth becomes more and more unstable in a funny kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so because all of us have more to lose, and so we grab harder at the, the fragments that we were given in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think even with fake news, it's, I mean, I was just thinking of fake news when you said that, because it just seems like, yeah, it's, it's, it just complicates the entire equation. And I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, so, yeah. So why don't we also take a moment to uh, listen a little bit from Small Talk. I uh, want to get a chance mm -hmm. to hear a little bit of the poems from there. Uh, and if you can introduce that collection and kind of talk a little bit about, it seems to be what the, the major uh, poetry collection you have, although you have many other publications as well. If you talk a little bit about mm -hmm. that collection. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I wrote Small Talk. Um, I started writing it, I think, in senior year of high school more seriously and kind of finished it um, in, yeah, in like 2017 or 18. But yeah, I think that it's primarily just, um, it's, it's a poetry collection about sort of growing up in, in Bhopal and what it meant to grow up in a small town like Popal, uh, a small city like Popal, you know, which is three million people, but I guess it's like small for for India. Um, so you know, it's it was. I think I grew up here, and I, I, I don't know. I just felt like there was a lot to um, there was a lot to unpack for me, especially because at the time when I was coming to to New York, or when I was like just about finishing this collection, um, a lot of things were changing, and I think that I was sort of wondering if I would miss. Um, you know, Popal as much or what it meant to me. Was it actually home? Because it seemed like I was going to, you know, probably find another home. Um, so I think it deals with that, but also just deals with like kind of always feeling claustrophobic in a small city. Um, everyone knows everyone and kind of what, there's so many trespasses, I think, um, in smaller cities. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I wrote small talk then, and then was picked up by writers' workshop, which was really, which was really nice. Um, yeah, and I guess I could read a couple of poems from yeah, it. Great, yeah. 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 Um, so I guess I can read a poem for my that I wrote for. Um, yeah, I can read the title collection of the poem, uh, poetry collection actually, the title poem. Um, yeah, it's um, small talk. In small towns like ours, the rivers are always ending. In small towns, not even the lilt in our voices ever touches us. In our towns, we forget why we walk and why we sometimes try. In our towns, we pray 
mostly for everything we can remember. Um, so yeah, that was a title. Very nice. Very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. Would do, do you like me to read another one? Read or? one more. Yeah, yeah. At least one more. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess I can read one for my mother. I usually read this one. Otherwise, I'm scared that she'll like just blast and like be angry at me if I don't. But um, this one's called Sandalwood. Um, in my mother's room, there is a kind of light I cannot drape. In the sandalwood closet, her wedding sari hangs with the ripple of temple bells ringing. Here is the Hindi I don't speak. It is the color of my mother on her wedding day. Ma, 27, tucking in this continent of herself, almost close to light. What moon shone that day? Answer, in other words. Mm. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Very nice. So, what uh, what kinds of things are you working on now? Uh, what uh, do you are going from small talk to uh, wherever we are now? Are you digging in? Are you fantasizing out? Uh, what uh, what direction are you looking right now? Um, I don't know. I think that I've been I've been kind of trying to take a little break from poetry and writing more essays or trying my hand at fiction um, and. I think so that right now I'm like just working on an essay, kind of like a lockdown diary, but more of like reflecting on everything that's going on and just kind of the wandering thoughts that come in my mind all the time about what we're going through. And I think about the interconnectedness of it all. Um, you know, like a lot of things or memories from the past kind of come to me suddenly. Now that I'm alone, I have more time to myself and thoughts keep invading all the time. Um, and, and I think just trying to write um, a short story or, or fiction after a long time, um, just mm. because everything now seems so quiet and it's just like I can't recognize my hometown. Um, like I went out a couple of weeks ago and I, I just couldn't recognize the streets and I, I, I just felt like there's so many possibilities here. I should, I should you know, this, this is a perfect situation or story like for a story or setting for a story so I, I don't know it just um it just kind of struck me that i should probably get down to writing fiction which hasn't happened yet but it's on the list so yeah. i also want to dig in a little bit on translation um yeah you know you talked a little bit in your pre-interview questions about um you know and also in the early in the interview talking about translating poetry um and, and one of the beliefs are um concepts you have that are unpopular within your industry. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about that? Um, you know, basically translating from Hindi or other languages to English and how you feel if there's any gaps or, or what the gaps are in which uh, something cannot be expressed in one language or what are your opinions on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely some things that can't be expressed. I, I, I think that more than just like things on the written page. Sometimes it's the inflection. Sometimes it's like the tone and I guess the gesture of saying something. Like I think if I start speaking in Hindi, I, my gestures and my, my body language and my inflections completely change. 
Um, and in Italian, it's completely different. And, and I think that sometimes it's the sound or the rhythm that's really hard, especially from a language like Hindi to English, which, are, which is just so different and they sound so different. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. And, and I, I think that it's, um, but I think it's a way for me to push the, the fact that there's like, I think we're consumed by this Anglophone readership more or less and, you know, language learning, et cetera, is not, it's not as popular as promoted as I think it should be, or even the learning of dialects and learning of like, you know, smaller regional languages and picking up on those things. So I think that it's just a way for me to, to take a break and kind of have my mind working in different ways and thinking of these in-betweens of language. But, but yeah, I think that it's, it's really strange because a lot of times, I, I mean, I do, I do see how translation can, you know, be a betrayal of sorts or it can be, it's not maybe as great as the original, but I, I don't think that that's kind of the reason why we shouldn't read more literature and translation. We shouldn't be reading more writers from other parts of the world than, you know, than the non-English speaking parts of the world. Um, and, and so I think that I, I kind of heard this one writer say at a lecture, like, oh, translation is like, you know, having sex with a condom on. And that just seemed to me so, it was like, I, I don't know what to make of this. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of, it, it was like really, it's, it's strange when I hear a lot more, many poets than, than I anticipated kind of saying, I don't read translation, translated works just because, you know, I, I don't know the original language. And, and I think that my response is always that you need to challenge your readership. You know, I think we take our readership for granted or we take reading for granted and we take, we're very easy on ourselves as readers sometimes. And we don't, you know, we, we pick, pick another book but, you know, maybe tracing back to the original language it was written in, finding out more about the original language. Um, like, you know, I have friends who are learning Japanese now. And then I learned, oh, like, oh, Japanese, like the structure of the language and the way the language goes creates this kind of sparse narrative and these sparse, you know, writing styles. And it made so much sense now when I, when I read Japanese literature that this is this is the language speaking and not just a mm. culture, not just, um, not just a style speaking. So I think that it's just, I, I keep finding ways to push my readership. So I think it's, 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 it's a, I, I think we should just stop taking that for granted and stop taking language for granted sometimes and push ourselves. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to dive into the Italian question a little bit. We're both enormous fans of Elena Ferrante and yeah. Apropos of the translation question, it's been clear over the past couple of years, she's much more popular in America than she is in Italy. And the Italians are actually quite puzzled by her international success. And I wonder if there's something about the translation or what your perception of that appreciation gap is, if you will. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, um, I mean, I, I find it really hard to understand why um, you know, she's not that popular in Italy. And I, I think that it is perhaps, you know, more perhaps because of the, you know, sexism and perhaps because of her anonymity. Um, and maybe that, you know, that question complicates things a little bit, even in the context of Italy. Um, but, but at the same time, I, I, I'm not so sure. I, I think that, yeah, I think that it was, um, 
for me, it was just that I, when I first read her works, I felt that someone had told my story, you know, it was mm. kind of like, um, I, I felt that, oh, and I have nothing in common with most of her characters or with her, you know, I'm not Italian. I'm not a 40 year old mother. Um, I'm not someone who's ever lived in Italy or has anything really to do with it. Um, you know, at least from, just from a distance, but it's, it's kind of, it felt like, you know, she had invaded my thoughts and invaded the thoughts that I didn't want anyone to know that I ever had. Like, you know, <laughs> otherwise I'd just come off as a bad person. And so it seems like she'd been living in my head and she just like wrote it all down. And so whenever I read Ferrante, I actually feel really angry because I feel like she's been spying on me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, now I don't have to say this and people won't think of me as a bad person. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's strange. And, and I think that's, that's the case with a lot of, um, I think people, um, at least, you know, I, I've introduced her to all of my friends, um, and they kind of feel the same way about growing up in, in like these dense neighborhoods and, you know, small towns and kind of everyone knowing everyone and kind of feeding off of, of the energy of the city and of the, of that density and of, you know, the surroundings and people. But I think in Italy, I did, I did sense that maybe it's also the North South divide that probably plays into it. You know, the mm. fact that she writes about Naples and the fact that she writes about women of Naples and of women who are so, um, so, so unlikable, you know, sometimes even like despicable almost. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's hard for, I think if it just comes out of the blue, I think it kind of takes, takes a lot, lot longer time for people to reconcile with the fact that it's there. Yeah. 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 Very yeah. interesting. So what's going on at La Pietra now? You've spent time in Florence with the NYU facility, the villa of Harold Acton on the edge of Florence. Um, yeah. What's going on there? Um, I don't know. I, it's probably really, really um, empty right now. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, I think it was, it was strange because they had students from Shanghai come over after the Shanghai campus closed. And then weeks later, the Florence campus closed. Mm. And so, you know, it was again like this displacement and double displacement of some students happening. Um, and I think that it's, I think the professors that I've been in touch with so far are fine. Um, so I think that no one from the NYU Florence, I hope no one from the NYU Florence community has been affected. But um, yeah, I think that it's, it's probably really empty right now, but I, I miss it. And I think that it was... So it's a beautiful, beautiful space to, to be and to study. Mm. I was actually thinking like it would be so, so wonderful to kind of just be there, you know, even if I have to be quarantined and isolated. Um, <laughs> it was just be, I don't have any windows in my home. So I'm just like, I, I just want to open up a window and see something, you know, a tree. Mm. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, I was there when Harold Acton was living and uh, we was there for an evening cocktails and things. And um, I'll never forget the gardens have a Venetian theater sculpted out of topiary with a uh, statuary from Venice in the 18th century that's been set up. So there's like a, a stage built of lawns and hedges and things like that. And, um, and, you'd be walking through the house and the, the curtains are fortuny and 
and his manners and his um, presentation of himself was just so courteous and courtly. He was very attuned to the needs of the smallest child in the room to make sure that they were looked after. And uh, so there's a wonderful heritage of uh, there for, uh, for students and faculty to continue the kinds of exchanges that he fostered actually as an Anglo-American Italian individual. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I, I, I mean, I've only had like limited access to it, you know, just when there was a seminar or something going on, but I, I feel really, I feel really envious of that, that estate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. cool. So um, cool. I want to also talk a little bit about what um, work that is not your own or um, that you wish everyone in the world would experience this question. You had a filmmaker um, spotlighted. So I just want to talk a little bit about that and how the impact it had on you and why you think everyone should experience his, uh, his work. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, for me, I mean, I definitely recommend Elena Ferrante, um, you know, yeah to anyone and everyone. Um, and it might take some time. And I recommend starting with The Lost Daughter. I think that that's slightly um, an easier book to start with. Um, and I, I think that that really changed things for me. Like, I, I just felt like this is the writer of my life. I have to learn Italian. I have to work on her. So I think that kind of just like, after I read her, that kind of just like started dictating my entire life. Huh. And now I'm, I'm way too obsessed with her. But I, I think that um, besides that, a film is obviously this, this, this film by a Bengali filmmaker, Ritwik Khatak. Um, and he makes these, I, I actually watched him, his films at, a, at like this film festival in the Lincoln Center. And I had never really, I, I'd heard of, of him, but never really watched his films. So I said, okay, maybe I'm gonna go to this three day festival and see it his films and I am um, I instantly met um, you know came across someone who was right there and who I know um and she's she's at NYU and she's in the same department and we were both like we've wasted our entire lives not watching these films and I think that it was just the fact that um you know and Gayatri Spivak the scholar um she kind of gave this like introduction to the film which was beautiful um but it, it just seems like um there was something about the, the way in which, you know, the, because it was, I think that a river called Titash is the film that I, I really loved and was the first film that I watched. It was about this kind of community of, um, you know, fishermen living in this kind of fishing village and, um, you know, how their story is forgotten. And, and I think it kind of had all of those things that I yearned to see, which is dialect and communication and gesture and sort of, things happening in really small quarters and things that are just translated in gestures and that, you know, people catch and, you know, try to try to ch change into reality or taking metaphors and trying to churn them into reality. And um, so I think that that film somehow does it. And it's, it's hard to explain how it doesn't. And it's hard to explain how the way that, you know, it kind of portrays it's, it's um, the, the women in the film. Um, I think that's really surprising. And it was made long time back, like in 1950s or something. Um, but it's just so, so fascinating. And, and even the cinematography is just beautiful. 
I heard Michael Andaje give a talk the other day, and he said that um, the problem is that you can say more in a single close-up in film than you can in three pages. Mm -hmm. And he said that's extremely unfair. <laughs> yeah. 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 I yeah, I, I have a I was thinking about that when um there there's this really nice film, um Mario Martone made a an adaptation of, you know, um Elena Ferrante's L'Amore Molesto or Troubling Love. And it's the same there. Like I I always we have this like Elena Ferrante reading group and I kept telling the people I was like, You just if you watch the film you'll know, you know, you'll know what's going on here. You'll get the timeline right. And and I, I felt the same way. I was like it's <laughs> It's kind of unfair that <laughs> this should be Elena Ferrante's job. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> you know, there's another uh, subcontinent writer can possibly connected to her. Jhumpa Lahiri has been translating the work of Stornone, who is yeah. alleged to be the husband of Elena Ferrante. Yeah, I took a class taught by Stornone. Oh. I kind of wanted to ask him the question, but then I didn't. <laughs> But I still was really starstruck whenever he and Anita Raya would walk and, you know, they were. And again, I saw them walking. I saw them the first time. I came across them in Washington Square Park and they were walking. And I kind of shouted, oh, my God, Elena Ferrante. And then I saw her put her hood up. And then, you know, <laughs> I was like, I'm supposed to be in class tomorrow. I should not have done that. But he didn't recognize me. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. god. Yeah. So, um, so one of the questions about uh what essential truth do you believe is undervalued in society? Part of the theme of this is again for the listeners, this is the Truth to Power show and Ready for Brooklyn. And we're kind of always investigating how um we find our inner truth, we find a truth in, in uh and how it allowed to empower ourselves in our communities. So what are some essential truths you think that are undervalued by uh, the general public or the general narrative, the general discourse, if you will? And how has that led to kind of you feeling more empowered uh, in your own life? Yeah, I mean, I've been turning more and more to the Indian constitution and to Ambedkar, the, the person who wrote it or the person who's considered to be the father of the Indian constitution. Um, Primarily because I, I think that he, I, I certainly feel that if, you know, there was ever a perfect Indian citizen to have ever lived, it would have to be him just because of the fact that he was so, he was such a great, very erudite scholar and kind of a really forward thinking philosopher, you know, and kind of very progressive in his thought. And I, I, th I think that the way that the government is functioning now is is just fascist. It's authoritarian. It's um, and it, it kind of goes against everything that was laid out by that was laid out in the constitution. You know, which is that it has to be secular. It has to be independent. You know, there has to be freedom and equality for everyone, and that you know you can't be pushing this narrative of this you know Hindu upper caste kind of ruling everything. So. I, I keep turning to the Constitution and of the people who kind of believe in the Constitution and believe that, you know, that we need to be honoring it and we need to be working with it instead of working against it like this government is. And so I think all these student activists, all of these lawyers and all of these protesters that we now see are kind of working 
to, to sort of in, uh, implement the truth that's in the constitution and the idea of the country that's in the constitution. I think that that's empowering to me. Thank you. Yeah. You also made, went in, uh, made a comment uh, earlier before this show started about living our desire to live grandly and mm -hmm. the uh, contradictions of that desire of uh, how it plays out in our ultimate happiness and the good of the planet. And could you elaborate on that idea a little bit? What, what is one of their, our own individual conceptions perhaps that are getting in the way of uh, real progress and healing? Yeah, I, I kind of don't remember what I, what I wrote or what I meant by that. But, you know, I, I think that it's just that, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that I've been feeling kind of really insignificant in the larger scheme of things, which is just that, you know, there's this invisible virus that we can't even see with our two eyes and it's brought the world to a standstill and it's changed the way that our lives would normally be going about, you know, if this hadn't come into the picture. And so it just makes me feel like all of these, I, like I don't think that, you know, anyone can do great work, but finally, you know, if there was a virus stopping them, like that's what I would think, you know, whatever, like a, you, you know, you do something great and then a virus, this invisible thing just comes and stops you in your tracks. Um, so I think that I've been feeling that and, and just the fact that, I, I mean, I'm just like glad that if I get to survive every day because I, I know that beyond these four walls, there are people who are homeless and, you know, maybe still in prison or maybe don't know where the next meal is coming from. And it just seems like anything that I might be, any idea that I might have, sure, I should go ahead and pursue it because I have to live life. But at the same time, you know, nothing is as important as just survival and just having what you need to survive and kind of having, I think it's really brought that whole idea of having a roof over your head and knowing when the next meal is coming and being able to eat it and having to drink water and going to bed. You know, I, I just think it's brought into perspective a lot of these essential things that, that I just need to survive. So I kind of don't, don't worry so much now about, you know, being productive, pulling something great of pulling something that will change the world because I think what is changing the world or what has changed the world is a virus that I can't see with my eyes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it's just kind of, I think I, I've just come to, I've just come to realize that how fragile, um, you know, we are and how fragile everything that we've created is and can be. Um, so yeah, I think that it's just like, I, I think I, I certainly don't, don't have the same, I, I used to really be like, I want to go out and kind of, you know, go to my favorite coffee shop and I want to go on a run outside and now I can't, but now I'm also just like, well, it's, it's fine if I'm getting to survive each day. I just want to say that it's so beautiful that you're coming to this realization that took me like a lot longer to realize, I think, uh, you know, because uh, I think there's, there's a real ego driven idea that, you know, we have to do important work. And uh, yeah. I think that really comes from a place of ego. You know, we have to kind of overcome that and realize the world is um, is going on and it's going to go on and it doesn't matter in some level what we do but at the same time we have work to do in this world and i still struggle with the idea of um you know how important that work is and i think ultimately 
the importance of that work is really besides the point. I think what I'm also getting from what you're saying, because we're insignificant, but at the same time, we have to do something. I mean, we have to wake up every morning, feel committed, feel heart connected to what we're doing. And that's the most yeah. important thing, I think. And it took me a lot longer than uh, 20 years or 21 years to, it took me about that time in my adult life to figure out, okay, now I just got to like feel committed to my work and, and feel okay about the fact that I'm not some yeah. big shot or something like that. I don't know, right? Well, I, yeah. I think a lot of people are having a near-death experience, which yeah. uh, the, the literature on near-death experiences is that it completely shatters the, any sense of artificiality you've had about how you should live your life. It brings you back to this fundamental human need for connection, for love, and so forth. And I was speculating with a friend, we're both in a, you know, in an age where at an age where we are vulnerable in the early days, everybody thought older people were more vulnerable. And we were speculating, will both of us survive this? And we weren't at all sure that we would. And we're still not because this is going to be a wave of a series of waves. And so getting through this first one doesn't mean we're, we're in the clear, but near death experiences are happening everywhere in this moment. And a near-death experience is happening culturally. And, um, you know, Cuomo said yesterday he wants New York to come back not as it was. And I think that is the dream of this opportunity. You know, as you see, the empty streets and the sort of latency of that, uh, the, the kind of uh, potential to, you know, be finally build a safety net in America. Uh, to recognize that we're in it together. Unfortunately, our political culture is more focusing on divides than togetherness, but can we fix that and then get back to the work? Um, th that's the opportunity we're facing and on an individual level and on a national level, and it can go wrong very easily. Your sense of survival and your importance of your survival can make you narrow and grasping and tighter and more self-concerned than ever. Or it can help you understand the plight of people worse off than you and what you can motivate you to help. We're at a cusp, I think. Um, and it's, it's frightening and it's exhilarating and there has never been a moment like it in any of our lifetimes. So um, it's very important to, uh, to make the most of it, I think. Yeah. And talking yeah, a bit I mean about how the personal is political is one of the major motivating ideas behind the show. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we think about political being personal in the sense of, you know, taking things too seriously and, and really making uh, political fights personal. But at the same time, our personal choices inform our political position. That's really the aspect of it that I tried to dive into, how, you know, we are, uh, our whole lives and everything is political. And we can talk a little bit about kind of what your impression of that is and and how you know people feel like, oh, I, I don't listen to the news, I don't follow the news, or I'm out of politics. And I think there's some perspective about that. But uh, this conversation also has been very kind of politically charged. Uh, and I think that it's important to realize that we all have a voice and we all kind of have our perspectives. And you talk a little bit about how the political is personal and the personal is political. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of never had a distinction between the two or clear distinction between, I, I just thought that everything is political, yeah. you know, and everything that is political is personal, obviously. So I, I think that I, I kind of just grew up with that. And, and maybe it's also because I'm, 
I'm part Sikh and part Hindu. So I, I now feel like on the flight back home, I was just like, oh, if someone asks me, what do I say? Because I don't follow either. And I, you know, just, I don't know, like I'm here and this is my name. This is whatever my, I'm a citizen, that's it. Um, so I think that even that, those personal questions have now suddenly got a political undertone to them um, mm. when I say it. And, and kind of, I, I mean, I, I just think that it's, it's also, I, I keep telling, I have, I, have, I have one friend who was like, you know, I, I've stopped watching the news and everything. And I understand that sometimes it can get really anxiety inducing and depressing, but at the same time, it's just, I, I think that it's like more than just parties and it's more than just mechanisms and like structures of power that are political. I think it's our, it's our daily lives. It's, it's the privilege that we have. It is, you know, when I look at myself in the mirror, I also see myself as a political entity or I see myself as like an identity that has many political kind of rhetorics and uses attached to it, you know? Um, and, and I think it's hard to, and I think even if you do say that you're apolitical or you're not engaged, you know, you can be utilized by politics and you can be utilized by political structures and mechanisms. And I, I think that the entire world is, is just, there is politics everywhere. Um, you know, there's politics and, and politics is just like, I think not even this grand concept or this grand thing that's just a seat of government. I think it's in everything. I think it's in, it's in negotiations, it's in the compromises that there are. I mean, even between me and my parents, there's a certain politics or there's a certain politics of, of you know, love or of care or of, you know, who, who is in control of who at this point in time or in these aspects that is also governed by, by, you know, by history and by politics and by social norms or cultural norms or, you know, in defiance of them. So I think that I just see everything as every small interaction, every small part of me as, as something political and something that's engaged in some kind of politics. Um, maybe something that I'm aware of and something that I'm not aware of and something that, and I think in this, this you know, tech world, it's just that how, my data in itself and how every single thing I input is being used um, for, you know, by corporations and by politics is so, so interesting. Um, uh, I think what I'm getting out of that also is the idea that I got from Evita, at least, uh, at least I was introduced from it, introduced to it first from, from the musical Evita, that politics is the art of the possible. And uh, the song is about, you know, politics, the art of the possible. And the idea that, uh, what we want and what we're pursuing, uh, how we make it happen is based on uh, politics. And that's kind of what politics really is, is, you know, how to make, how to manifest things. And, and that really is connected. I think the core of this conversation is connected to how we view successes and failures and uh, what is the heart of when things don't go the way we want them to, how do we react to that? And if we can end on that note, how you defend, how you interpret uh a success and a failure as we start to wind down last four minutes. So why don't we go into that a little bit? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I kind of don't know if I've ever succeeded at anything. And if I've ever, I think that I definitely can like list like things I failed at and, you know, like things I managed to do, but I don't know. I just like kind of, I'm always in the habit of keeping on or like I just keep going. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, Sometimes I realize, oh, that was a failure 
or that turned that didn't turn out good. Um, and you know, as a writer, I always keep going back to poems I wrote five years ago and being like, "What? I I don't know what I was doing, or that that's that's complete rubbish." You know, I mm. think that that. But but I think that I just um, I mean, I think if the realization comes to me, it comes to me. But I don't sort of dwell on things too much. Um, I I do I do feel really anxious, and I do have this you know compulsive need to, to like you know do whatever um, and. Obviously, I, I also have like, you know, feel this imposter syndrome sometimes just takes over me. But at the same time, I, I just think that I've, again, I just see people living, you know, I, like my professor was saying how she wasted all her years at grad school, didn't get a decent job, racked up debt. And, you know, but I was like, but you're here right now and I'm in awe of you. And, you know, so she turned out okay. Yeah. And I just like keep looking at these examples and I... I kind of have this joke now where I'm like, oh, you know, if, if president can be the stupid, I think I'll turn out fine. Um, so, you know, it's, I just kind of, I kind of have like different benchmarks at this point, but I, I think that I just, I just take, I don't take, um, if I get time to reflect, I get time to reflect. Otherwise I just wait for the reflection to hit me um, sometimes you. harder than I wanted to. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So Bruce, you want to weigh in on that? As I'll, as I'll start my announcements, just very quickly, and then I'll start my announcements about the show. Sure, sure. I, I think that um, the struggle you're mentioning, Dave, is something we all face all the time, and a lot of the, it's the struggle for contentment, really, of understanding why we're doing things, what what will survive if it fails, what will change if it succeeds, which is often, it has very little impact. <laughs> Either way, you know, it, um, and trusting that. I think it's also having, um, having trust in the fact that uh, life goes on. And uh, if you succeed at a challenge, then you're ready for the next challenge and it will be much the same. If you fail, you'll have the same challenge again. Uh, and understanding that cycle, I hope, gives us space to think beyond ourselves, which is where you can start transcending that cycle of failure and success. And, and, and just a, a broader awareness of what's going on. And part of what I think makes politics so challenging is the way it's being fed to us by these the speakers and those who have the platform and now that's a whole other conversation i'll turn back to bj who needs All to right, wrap thank you guys so thank you for listening to the truth to power show on ready for brooklyn uh ready for brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community so we're going to be hitting our uh fifth anniversary so please consider donating at readyforbrooklyn.org slash um truth to power or do donate i believe so go ahead and check us out and check us out every week at uh mondays at 8 a.m thanks so much guys thank you thank you david very thank nice you. to meet you